Welcome, everybody. Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay. I'm on a mission to help entrepreneurs advance society, and this podcast is definitively part of that effort. All right, we got a session with Mike today. Uh, we are going to kind of do a deep dive uh, wrap on the venture ecosystem. Everything from what's going on in the IPO markets, which have been kind of uh, lackluster, not, not all of the outcomes we we're hoping for, to how the VC ecosystem from a financing perspective has kind of restructured. Um, this is one of the more conversational threads we've had in a while. Uh, if you're in and around the game, LP, VC, entrepreneur, I think you're probably going to find some nuggets in here. I hope you enjoy. So, where'd you get the glasses? Hold on a sec. I've got it. Caddis. Yep. Uh, check it out if you're geezer McGee's like myself. Caddis makes designer reading glasses. Oh. And so you can get aviators and other types of extremely stylish frames for old people. And all of their models are probably 50 plus, but as cool looking as possible. Mm. And so you can go in and get some fresh gear. Um, no, they're not sponsoring us, but they should be now because that was the plug of all plugs. So when I found out about them, I was like, okay, I need reading glasses because I'm old. And I went in yeah. and nothing fits me. Don't love style usually. And was in and out of the Caddis store in 25 minutes with, you, with new shades or new I, reading glasses. I would bet you that a lot of old people would find it offensive that at 42 years old, you think you're old. You know, maybe everyone thinks, actually, it's weird. I was just talking to a, uh, a friend yeah. uh, who is in politics. And the senior political folks who are in their 70s are calling him a young man. Yeah. And, and he's like pre-50. Okay. I don't know. When you're like late 40s, kind of pre-50, I think you're kind of, I don't know if you're like middle-aged. I mean, let's be honest. Yeah, you're middle-aged, but you're not old. Yeah, but I... We're, we're going to work on this mindset. Okay, hold on you, a second. I'm I, the gray hair guy. And yeah, I'm one of the gray hair guys now in the startup community, right? Because like every, the average age in startup land is waiting... 20s 30s I, you tip 40 and you actually have real gray hair in your face everyone's like whoa he's still yeah. walking without like a <laughs> without a walker yeah i don't think that's really true anymore i mean if you look at like the you know the guys and, and women who have been in venture for a long time you know look at like the peter teals or keith Raboys or bill Gurley's of the world they're older than you they probably would think you're middle-aged. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Old is relative. It's a state of mind. Yes. We're going to work on your state of mind. There's advantages to feeling old, though. Interesting. It's a tactic for you. I think it's self-deprecating in a world of yeah. young people constantly around you. Maybe good talk with your therapist to figure out like God, why you call yourself old. Mike, aren't you my therapist? I, Isn't that what this is? You don't pay me enough to be a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other JD, dude. All right. Uh, all right, cool. Let's talk about startup markets. What's going on in the startup markets? You, um, you want to kick us off? Yeah, I'll kick it off. I mean, I think, you know, everyone was super hyped for, for, some, for some big tech names, IPO, Clavio, Instacart uh, are probably the two that were most relevant. It got very quiet after that. Those IPOs have not traded so well. I mean, you know, I think they fit in the bucket of not good, not terrible somewhere between medium and bad, both trading down. I think something, you know, per our recording now around 15% from the IPO price. So, you know, I'm sure not what the company's looking for, the IPO is looking for. Although there is a strong uh, 
case study here and I think a, lot, a little bit to dissect on why they want public and, and how there is a roadmap for a lot of other companies like them to do the same thing. But generally speaking, you know, not what we wanted to see to sort of open the floodgates for IPOs. This was kind of a dagger in my heart moment. Yeah. Right. Um, having these companies repriced from private market highs, aka insanity, yep. to public market viable pricing. And then to go into market and get a dip um, was just sad. Uh, and reason why was not just for those companies and all the people who have worked their ass off to get those companies to where they are. Yeah. Um, we were hoping they were kind of first companies through the gate in this new cycle and going to blow everything open and make way for the next folks. Yeah. Um, it's less clear now. I agree. It's kind of like a medium outcome, a medium negative. Totally. Um, not, a, not an awesome. Yeah, And so I think for founders and board members that have optionality about when to take the company public, let's say they're operating profitably or they have the option to tap into some more capital resources, there's a moment where you say, hey, I'll wait another six to 12 months, uh, maybe two years yep. to pull the trigger. And that's a big deal because it's not just about those companies. The whole ecosystem is kind of bottlenecked with all this value locked up in these big late stage companies. And once they liquidate and bring money back to institutional investors, VCs, the system, the system starts cycling again. Totally. Uh, we need what we call in VC land DPI, which in English is money back to the investors yeah. and funds so they can redeploy it. And the circulatory system gets thriving again. Totally. I think that's an underlooked part of how the venture ecosystem works. Uh, big IPOs drive big liquidity events for VCs, which means big liquidity events for LPs. And also what it does is it unlocks talent at these companies to go start their next thing. Totally. Because if you're a senior executive at something like Instacart, for example, you can't you know, you don't want to leave until the IPO happens. And when that does happen, then you know you get liquid, you get some cash, maybe you go start your next thing or you join an early stage company to help them go from zero to one again. But you really need these moments and you need them to go decently well for these people to go do that. And uh, yeah, I think it was a bit of a shame that we couldn't have this kind of catalyst, catalyst moment that we wanted. And there's an, even another social dimension to it. Um, I kind of think when a company goes public successfully or even moderately well, uh, the founders kind of get knighted by capitalism. There's this uh, yeah. English class I took in college, and I, I feel like in college, you remember three things that kind of like land with you. Yeah. Uh, one of them was I read some uh, writing from Andrew Carnegie. Now, if you're a history not like I am, you'll know that Andrew Carnegie was from a different day, and there's a lot of complexity around that. So putting all that aside, uh, Carnegie had this mindset that capitalism tends to break after people get rich. And the reason why is they'll take their money and they'll retire and they'll put money in the stock market or the bond market. Mm -hmm. And they're essentially giving money to more or less bureaucrats to go and run with it. What he wanted people to do is to use the capitalistic system to essentially self-select them, to give them cap capital for their capable hands, his language, to go build more. Right. And so you get founders who get to the end of a journey they IPO, and now they've got hundreds of millions of dollars, if not more. The social potential, the impact that these people can have is massive. And it's sitting there waiting for them to be unlocked. Yeah. And I think what you're really saying is it's, it's risk, right? 
in and the entrepreneurial mindset typically when they have a big exit they're not just like hey let's go put this in the S&P or bonds so I want to reinvest this in the next generation of entrepreneur they become angel investors they become company buyers and builders and uh you know, back to the initial point, that's the that's the circular nature of the innovation in the ecosystem. Or they start the next thing, but they might have a different risk profile. They might say, "Look, I'm already loaded. Yep, incremental hundred million billion doesn't really change anything in my quality of life. So I'm going to go out and tackle something that's really hard, right, and really daring, and really risky, and do it with their own money because there's not capital markets always to support those endeavors in the early stages. Totally. Right. You look at SpaceX. Right, you can't just go and raise VC money to buy your first like rocket. There's a perfect example from our own Interplay community and Max Hote from uh, from Launcher. Exactly. Yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah. Successful entrepreneur yeah. sold his last businesses in a totally different sector. Came back, had money, said, you know what, I'm going to build spaceships, rocket engines, actually in his case. Right. And uh, I'm going to see it with my own money and go raise capital around that. And you're right. That's those are the hard problems that move mankind forward. No chance he would have been able to even turn the light on in that right. new venture if he hadn't have already had some success with a couple of ventures prior. Totally. So it's this system of training people, but also the system's kind of selecting out who can really move it forward. And it like knights them. That's my language for my head. It dubs them and says, yo, you're the, you're the person. Here's the money. You identify the problem. You have the capable hands. Go make it happen. Yeah. Not everyone does it, but when they do it, we're getting some of the more aggressive, imaginative, uh, envelope pushing opportunities coming out of society. And that's on hold right now. As we've got all these really awesome founders locked up in companies, and they'll get out. Yeah. But a year or two from now, they'll be armed with cash and probably lots of fresh ideas, and exciting things can happen again. Totally. And what what did happen with these IPOs, and I think what is a really interesting road for founders out there who are thinking, what do I do, or where where can I exit in the next couple of years, or even in the next cycle? Who cares, right? Is the IPO mechanism will relieve you of your preference stack. Yeah. So what I think will happen in the next year to two years is we might have some quote unquote bad IPOs. Not bad, but you know what I'm saying? Not the massive bumps medium, or up negative, rounds. Medium plus, somewhere exactly. in there. But what it will do is it'll free up what is a big log jam in this system that you just spoke about so eloquently, I might add. Um, take that. And that is the preference stack. Because a lot of founders are looking at their cap table saying, well, I can't IPO now because I've got 200 million of LickPref on there and maybe the business isn't worth that or whatever. And we got to figure out how we're going to get to this next stage. The IPO market is a pretty clean way to flip everyone to common, float the shares, let the market tell you what the thing is worth. If people are long-term believers in the business, they can hold on to their equity. And if they're not, when their lockup ends, they can get out and then yeah. recycle that capital back into other things that are interesting to them. Yeah. It's like we have a clogged artery right now. Yeah. Right. And like the whole system is starting to get backlogged on it. Totally. It's got it. We got to get a stent in there, break this thing open. Money back to universities, foundations, back to new VCs. The whole Perfect. system needs to kind of keep flowing again. Agreed. Well, with that said, uh, the one market which hasn't slowed down that much is the kind of pre-seed seed, seed uh, space. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Well, I, I think we could map our this previous conversation to this too, because you know a lot of people were talking about the amount of dry capital in the ecosystem. Where's that going? It's not going to growth right now, where that where it's really clogged machine per the conversation. 
where people are doing it is in two to $4 million seed rounds because A, it's such a long cycle from there to IPO, exit, or sale. And two, it's smaller checks. So it's pretty easy to validate and understand uh, how you can, you know, quote unquote, value these companies with the seed capital uh, and putting you know, early, early dollars in. Yeah, I think the underpinning logic there, which holds, is hey, you're looking at a five to nine year timeline before these companies are looking at real M&A. Five to 15. Yeah, or for certainly for an IPO. Yeah. So current IPO dynamics, not a risk factor. No. But what I think a lot of folks are missing is that um, well-capitalized growth funds right now can really strike incredible deals if they're repriced properly. Uh, and again, it's, it's this classic... You want to zig when everyone's zagging if you want to make money. So I think from the LP community, there is a real opportunity right now to be funding and growth. Totally. Uh, you know, for the growth investors that are disciplined in this market and are budgeting and planning for a lag of the artery remaining clogged a little longer than anticipated. Yeah. But there, there is value. There's deals to be made. And when I say that, I cringe. Because usually the pr people who get screwed over in that are the founders, right? The founders who have got the company to the growth stage, they did everything right in most cases, and they land at some weird market environment at the last minute, or they got too excited in a good yeah. market environment and then it flipped. It's just, so uh, heart goes out to those folks a little bit because that's bad luck of the draw right now. 100%. And you know, it does show you like uh, timing your business exit for a market cycle is almost as important as uh or if as important as 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 the the core foundation of the business um yeah people who don't think luck is part of business uh, yeah wake up wake it's, up it's definitely part it's of it. part of life and business and yeah. we can get really meta on it but um i mean the the data is the seed market now is so, looks a lot like the seed market in 2021 um average round size and post money valuation so we, we really haven't changed we're down slightly from the top of the 2022 market and you know, I'll lean in for a second and, and pull some stats, but uh, data, $18 million post money on seed rounds right now. So we, we really haven't seen like a ton of change uh, from, from where the market maxed out. Right. Is it lower volume? Like, are we seeing the same kind of strike points on price, but the volume is down because there's just fewer players in it? Yeah. I, or is it every rich uncle is still funding a lot of folks and they're in that and there's a... There's a lot of volume going it's on, or what, what's happening? Somewhere in the middle, uh, volume still high, deal flow still high, uh, but down from like max, max, max. But round size holding steady and price holding steady, and I think that's you know really like a, a sign of the times mm -hmm. uh, because there is so much capital floating around and people are just going earlier because it's the safest place to be investing right now. You know, what's interesting in these cycles is. Um, Venture funds generally don't have a lot of longevity. If you compare VC to private equity, for example, when I say private equity, I mean leverage buyouts. Yeah. You know, uh, the distribution curve of yield for LBO firms, I don't know, I'm making it up, it's just wrong, but like two standard deviations each way, you're looking at five percentage points difference in performance. Everyone's kind of in the same band, right? You're getting 10% to 18% yeah. returns. You're not like striking out and hitting home runs. In VC, it's like five to ten percent of the firms make all the money. Right. And so what ends up happening in that paradigm is once a couple cycles, you know, a firm goes through a couple of vintages, if they're not in that winning group, they fold. And so the names and logos in New York today 
are very different than the names and logos in New York when I started the business in 06. There's a handful that have carried through. They're the kind of the iconic names we all know that um, have continued to perform and they're institutional in the way they operate. But there's this every five to 10 year washout. And so actually for Seed, while it's still active, I'm expecting that there's going to be a washout of logos. It may be the same people. Like they may reorganize, whatever, but there'll be new firms. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're kind of in the, usually this is the point where you see a kind of a, a lot of turnover in the, in the icons. Right. And, and, and Seed has changed fundamentally too, right? I mean, from when you started in VC in, in what, 2012? 2012? 2006. Firm, we started Interplay in 12. Yeah. First year in the business as an intern, 2006. Seed was synonymous with friends and family. Right. It was not yet an institutional product. When you were raising your seed round, it was like doctor's lawyers. Right. Which is crazy. Now it's, you know, it's, we're, we're cycles from that. Totally. That kind of that kind of institutionalized in 08. Makes sense. And what like wh what have you seen come like from a company building shift? Do they hire slower? Does the capital actually get them further than what you saw early in the market? Or are we sort of living in the same paradigm except people are just spending more money? Yeah, I think um, there was a major shift in capital requirements by company. Yeah, that happened kind of right around the turn of the century, right? And the big shift was actually uh, hardware, right? In 99, 2000, 2001, pre-Amazon Web Services and the entire industry that's formed around that, mm -hmm. a company to get started would have to get three million bucks just to buy servers to stick in the corner that they plug into the wall. That was the baseline. Right. And now that's a hundred bucks and you can usually get like a credit if, yeah. you, if you have a good incubator or partner and you're yeah, getting for, it for free, you get $10,000 for free bucks, plus. Yeah. And so uh, the cost, in my opinion, of starting a company has asymptotically declined approaching the cost of labor. And in a world where founders will work for equity in some cases and all that, the, the cost is really low to start a company now. It's not even in the same universe it used to be. Yeah. It used to be like two to 10 million bucks to kind of get the lights on. Totally. So, but after it came down, uh, the patterns on how much capital the companies have needed has vacillated up and down. But I think we've seen more movement in the language of how we talk about the funding stages than we have actually in the capital requirements itself. Got you. Okay. Helpful. Well, today, I mean, I think it's worth talking a bit about the the Series A market today, you know, our core focus here uh, at Interplay on the investing side and uh, and kind of what we're seeing in the market I mean, the data today shows that the the pre-seed round is typically two million bucks. So that has completely replaced, you know, even post your time, what the seed round looked like, or or exactly. So it's it's bigger was, than the traditional in, in seed round. Six that was like an A. That was an A, yeah, exactly. And then the seed was friends and family. Right now, pre-seed is the the old A. Yeah, it's all shifted. It's anyway, shifted two steps. If we look back ten years, that say twenty twelve numbers, the seed round was one and a half million bucks. This the pre seed now is two million bucks. Series A's then were five million. The seed rounds today are four million bucks. Uh, series B's then were thirteen million bucks. Series A's now are twelve million bucks. Uh, so the the whole paradigm has really just shifted. I think you know I can chime in for a minute here on what I'm seeing in the market. Uh, the Series A I think is you know used to be around where I say used to in this previous market cycle, if you had some data and metrics and, and you were showing some revenue growth, you could probably get capital. That is not the case today. 
Uh, I think the bar is as high as it's been in, in my career, at least, which is about eight years now, uh, for raising a Series A. Uh, and by Series A, I mean like a, a true up round from the seed, probably over $5 million of capital raised, closer to 10. Uh, you really need to be growing fast with good unit economics in a big market. Uh, and of, of all the characteristics of a, a top 1% company, uh, where again, that was not the case previously. People were taking bets on things that did not look like that. Uh, what's happening to the majority of founders, and there's nothing wrong with this, by the way, some companies just take longer to really find that core product market fit, is they're raising a seed extension of 5 million bucks. I would just call that a small Series A, mm-hmm. but a lot of them like to call it a seed extension or, right. or et cetera. Uh, and again, that's fine. Not everyone is on that same path. Most companies struggle or find product market fit or iterate or pivot. That's a totally normal thing to do in startup land. Um, but the bar for founders going out to raise their Series A, if, you, if you're going to put a deck together that says, I want to raise 10 million bucks for Series A, you better have tight numbers. And this thing better be growing fast. And you better be able to sit there and look everyone in the face and say, we are one of the best companies in the market right now. Otherwise, shrink the round size, raise a bridge, figure it, figure it out. Yeah, I think to take a big step back, not the yeah. last five years, but you could make an argument that the operational milestones and the am- amount of capital raised at each milestone is roughly in the same universe. It's just all been relabeled. Yeah. There's this first stage, forget the word for it, which is you're architecting out a business concept. You're getting some early cash. It's a drawing on a piece of paper. You've got a design of an engine. Then there's another phase where you've built the engine. You put a little gasoline in it. You can test the efficiency of it. You can see the machines churning. Then you got a phase where you're driving, you're driving laps and you know this thing really works. Yep. And then you've got like, all right, let's make this thing hot. Let's put great tires on it. Let's put a bunch of cash in it. Let's take it across the country. That was when I started friends and family, A, B, C, whatever. Problem is there aren't letters before the letter A. So as it shifted in this pattern, yeah. that's now pre-seed, seed, A, B. I think when I started, what is now an A was probably called a B. Or it was B or even a C. I mean, it's just, it's totally off. Yeah. But I think the core concept that there are operational milestones in this conveyor belt that is venture capital where people are looking for certain risk profile to be mitigated to get to the next round of funding in a systematic way. Because this is an innovation supply chain. We're trying to systematically produce things that advance society and make everybody money in the short term. Totally. Right? Uh, I think there's probably a lot of parallels if you can strip out the language, but the language has obviously changed. Yeah. I think that's that's dead on. And I think the the issue that we have in this current market is founders' mentality is that they have to have a certain size, name, title, all of the uh, the front-end uh, metrics that don't actually matter for running a business. Right. And we run into this a lot with founders trying to call things a certain name or raise a certain price to validate either their worth or their company's worth or, or, or some made-up thing that doesn't actually have anything to do with where the end outcome is, which is you know, selling for a, a large number and during return for your investors and your employees. Right. Everyone's watching Formula One right now. Would, yeah. you, would you rather have the dopest car right, or the best sticker on top of it? Yeah, exactly. Have the dopest car. It's a no-brainer. Have and, the dopest car. And so it's all about operational efficiency, hitting your KPIs. The investors follow. The Everything else follows. Yeah. The one thing I will say, which is you had a conversation with a portfolio company founder the other day, uh, and they were... Little stress about like how fast they grow versus how much they invest in product. 
And I, I think the one really nice thing about the market right now for founders who are in that situation is the growth numbers are the expectations for growth are not as high as they was they were. So for founders who are thinking, hey, should I invest? Should I grow at you know 100% year over year or 80% year over year, but then focus that extra money on improving our product? My answer would be focus on the product side right now because I don't think investors will weigh the mild differences in growth, whether it be 10, 15, 20, 30, even even 50%, if you can build the best in class product because best products win. Like we know that hands down. But that wasn't the common mindset in the boom of a of 18 months past. 100%. Because everyone coming through was buying growth with every dollar at a loss in some cases, which is crazy. And so when you're yeah. indexing everything coming through the door and 300% growth, 300% growth, 300% growth, 80% growth, you pass on the great company that 80 that was probably doing the execution with great discipline and was building a longer term venture got a little bit overshadowed by some of the noise of the market founders were told to grow revenue at all costs and what that means when you're an asset when you're a capital allocator which founders are at their core is you have to choose where you're going to invest that capital so you invested in sales or you invested in products and every founder was told invest in sales because we only care about sales now to your point on the engine analogy all the engines blew up. Right. And extremely unfuel efficient. <laughs> extremely unfuel right. efficient. Built You're with getting two tape, miles a gallon. No real tech. Right. Products suffer. But endless gasoline, so it didn't matter. Didn't matter. But now the gas is gone. Now the gas is gone. So right. you got to build a fuel efficient engine. And you're seeing a lot of companies pivot back, you know, to keep using that analogy, to building that fuel efficient engine. For some of them, it's too little too late. Some of them will, will turn it around and get there. And that's great for them and their teams. But uh, I think if you're a founder now going out to raise a Series A, my advice is like, yeah, you have to grow because you know VCs and and the team want to see growth, and growth is important. But having a best in class product will fuel that growth in a sustainable way, which will get you to that A or that B, even if it means you raise a bridge or whatever it is. It doesn't matter. The mark to market on these rounds is not a real price for you selling or exiting a company. The key is to man- minimize dilution maximize ROI for yourself, your employees, and the company and their shareholders. Right. So, but for every founder who got in this game after 2008's bust, this is the time where they're getting their PhD. Like take notes. Yeah. Because see it once. You don't need to see it again. When you start the next company, even if the market's hotter than hell, you know fuel efficiency matters. Totally. And you can make tough decisions and allocate resources differently than the hype might dictate, knowing that the, you know, there might be a scarcity of fuel at some point. Totally. And you could be ready for it. And, and you know, looking into our portfolio, you can see the repeat founders in our fund who had been doing that the whole time. Totally. Now we won't name names, but they're they're near and dear to our heart and and you know, they they built the business that way from the ground up. And right. they're like, all right, there's extra fuel. Cool. We're gonna we're gonna go thirty miles a gallon. Yeah. And we're gonna put a bunch of fuel in. Yep. But it's our not tank's the same. Full, yeah. Right. The, the tank's <laughs> full, right? Yeah. That's a different mindset. And so everyone coming out of this vintage now should be trained up. All the companies being started this year, next year, the year after, doesn't matter how hot the market gets. No one should forget this if, the, if you're in the game right now. This is your training. Critical to longevity. Critical. Uh, because, hey, that was a long uh, bull run, right? It's not always that long. Sometimes it's three years, four years, five years. Yeah. So, you know, if the average time to exit is nine plus. Totally. It, you, you could be riding a cycle or two during a venture. Yeah. And we, we've talked about this before. The zero interest rate world that we just came out of is uh, extremely uniquely beneficial to tech. 
Because if the cost of capital goes to zero, which is what we just saw, the yeah. lowest it's ever been in our lifetimes, and I think the lowest it'll ever be, honestly. I mean, I don't, you know, we won't go into rates right now, but I don't think rates will go to zero again in our lifetime, candidly. Uh, it puts it, it when capital is free. Where would it go? It should go to high risk, high return ventures like like technology. So I think that any founder thinking that we're going to get back to that market in their lifetime, I think is sadly mistaken. I hope we don't, to be honest with you. Something would have to be seriously wrong for us to go back to zero interest rates. I'm not saying that we won't get back into hot tech markets. We will get into hype. Yeah, I'm gonna, yeah. We will get into hype. Let me be clear. We'll yeah. get into hype. Things will get overvalued. Will they get to the point where they are as overvalued as they were in a zero interest rate environment where arguably they weren't even overvalued because at rates at zero, what is overvalued? But here's where, here's where uh, I'm yeah. agreeing with you, but want to add a nuance. Yeah. Uh, we may not have the interest rate environment we just had. I'm actually aligned. I think that's unlikely. Uh, but we had a crazy hot market in 99, 2000. Totally. And it wasn't because of the cost of capital. It was because the perceived potential value of the companies was basically immeasurable. Right. Right. So if like you're, if for the financial nerds out there, it wasn't the discount rate, it was the terminal value. Totally. It was infinite. Right. And we're and seeing so that you with were AI. buying eyeballs and you know, God, you know, God totally. knows what. And we saw that briefly with the AI market in the last six months or so, which is already cooling. We've right. talked about this for on the pod. Uh, it's already cooling. That cycle was quicker and faster than I think anybody thought it was going to be. And will it come back again? Sure. I'm not saying that that's gone. And I, again, I agree. We will enter a massive hype cycle again. It will look different and smell different and feel different than this one. I think the zero interest rate world was unique because it was a flood of all asset classes. Right. So when you had the 99 cycle, it was sort of very isolated on tech. I remember if anyone wants to pull up like the Qualcomm chart from 2000, where the stock went literally parabolic on a chart. Right. Okay. I think we will, we will have a world where the next phase of whatever it is, is that, but the zero interest rate world where people were literally It'll giving money away catalog. to anybody. I do not think, I do not hope we see it again in our lifetime because it means that there is something structurally wrong with our, yeah. with our economy and it will not help anybody. It'll be a different catalyst, but I do think everyone right now can stop and look and say, yo, whether I'm a founder, I'm a VC, I'm an LP, yeah, anywhere in the supply chain, there's going to be ups and downs. Totally. And neither of them are permanent. And so you can start hedging and measuring and, and factoring them in. I mean, even in this drop, like when this, when this crashed, people were like, I don't know if VC is coming back. I roll. Yeah. Right. Uh, I, you know, it's just, it, it's never going to crash again. I roll. I roll. And we see that in our conversation with LPs, right? Uh, the, the institutional LPs in the market who are long-term allocators are still allocating capital to venture right. capital, right? Like they, they understand from an asset allocation strategy, you want to be in every vintage, you want to have allocation to venture in up markets and down markets. You know, we do see- The pros know. The pros know, right? And there are some of our, of our LP base who have, you know, they shift to different strategies during these times. You know, I think neither of us would agree that's the good, that's the right long-term strategy. Yeah. Um, but little opportunism, but it's, it's, it's weightings. It's, it's weightings. not, it's not dipping out of uh, sectors. Yeah. And I think what, what we're seeing, you know, from our seat here is finally the best pricing we've seen in a long time, opportunities to put more capital into our best portfolio companies at great prices, and also just the general realism amongst founders around what fair valuations are and what realistic outcomes are for them. And I, I love the last one, uh, particularly on the operational side, not the valuation side. Totally. I love seeing founders coming in really focused on building real businesses with real fundamentals. Because at the end of the day, this isn't pretend. 
Right. We're, we're not like making up a cartoon of yeah. something we're going to sell to somebody else and then it's over. We're creating goods and services that are going to change the way people live their quality of life. Totally. This is for real. And, and only so works. those need to be real businesses. And yeah, only works in a capitalist society when they have profits. Totally. I think that's a good place to leave it. All right. Good sesh. Maybe you are old. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to that. Hopefully it was helpful. Uh, Mike came in and crushed it today, which was awesome. Uh, more to come. Stay tuned. <laughs>